This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Phil Rowley is a Stillwater icon. Author, presenter, fly tire, and instructor, Phil has shared his knowledge and paved the road for countless anglers. I was excited to finally have him on the show to learn more about his entrance into the fly fishing industry. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss chronomids, triploids, feeling boxed in, and how he went from working in an insurance office to working full-time in the fishing industry. I'm also delighted to let you know that we finally opened the doors yesterday to our highly anticipated chronomid fishing class with Brian Chan. Early bird pricing and perks are in effect until this Friday at midnight, so you've got two days to go over to anchoredoutdoors.com to grab Brian's class while prices are this low. The class will teach you everything you need to know about chronomids and how to fish them. Brian does not hold back while he shares over 40 years worth of knowledge, including entomology in the chronomid life cycle, tackle requirements, floating techniques, sinking techniques, fishing multiple flies, boat setup, matching the hatch, throat pumping, fly tying, and so much more. So head on over to anchoredoutdoors.com, look for the masterclass tab, and you will find it right at the very top. Enjoy. I was born in Liverpool, England, and lived there for seven years, emigrated to Canada in October of 1969, uh, landed in Vancouver, and spent our first year living in Chilliwack, which you know rather well. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, my dad got a job over on Vancouver Island, 
So I moved over there, I would say 1970, 70, early 71, and then lived on Vancouver Island till just after high school, and then moved over to the greater Vancouver area, bright lights, big city, lots of lots for young people to do there, and then too poor to move home, and then just lived in the greater Vancouver area, slowly moving east, as, as you know, when you live there, as the way housing, house prices are, you can't afford to slide west, you can only move east out into the suburbs, um, and lived uh, there for 35, 35 years in BC, and then moved to Alberta um, 15, 16 years ago, total change of career. Um, I had, I had, when I got out of school, I wanted to be a pilot. That was what I had, uh, hoped to be, but, uh, fell victim of the first recession in the eighties, uh, when airlines were laying off and I was, uh, sort of just got my commercial pilot's license, which, you know, basically I knew enough to be dangerous and, and trying to build hours and, uh, was trying to get, you know, a job up in Northern BC, flying a float plane or a bush, you know, and just building up hours and, and uh, airlines were laying people off left, right, and center at that time. So you were competing with laid-off airline captains, which I didn't have the the skill or the experience to uh, match up with that. So ended up working, got a job ground floor level with big insurance company in BC, and then uh, yeah, the one. And then <laughs> are there any and, others? <laughs> I thought yeah. there was just one. <laughs> <laughs> there is. Um, it was a good experience as far as learning management skills and training and all that stuff. Uh, worked there for 16 years as a left as a manager, kind of got, um, picked, asked to swatch, swap careers and went over, well, not swap careers, swapped, went over the other side of the fence, you could say, and, and, uh, worked for a collision repair company for seven years. I was the head of human resources there when I left and, and training. And then, as you know, with, uh, my relationship with Brian, we uh, worked with uh, a Canadian company uh, called Superfly and uh, worked together and developed a still water solutions product line. And that relationship led to a job offer uh, that moved me to Alberta, where I became the operations manager for them for about four and a half years. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You get me rolling. <laughs> now I get to bring you back all those years. Sure. Were your parents English? Yep. Yep. I'm uh, My sister's English by birth. Uh, my parents were. My father had spent uh, right after World War II. He was too. My mom and dad were too young to participate, you know, in the military sense. Um, but uh, they vividly remember it, you know, being bombed and the rations and uh, those kind of things. And right after World War II, England had mandatory service. So um, my dad, I think, wanted to go in the RAF, but I think they only offered him like a twenty-five year hitch. And he was like, uh, "No, I don't think I want to commit twenty-five years uh, just out of you know just um, early adulthood." So he joined the Merchant Navy. So he basically sailed the world, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, um, over to New York, uh, all those kind of places, uh, down into the Caribbean. And uh, I think he came to the realization um, at that time, the way he saw England going at that time, he felt there was more opportunity outside of uh, England. So he looked to emigrate and, and, and in his research, he'd done Canada and New Zealand. So he applied to go to both and Canada accepted uh, his immigration application first and over we came. So he came over about a year before we did. Right. right? Was he a fisherman? Nope. <laughs> all he of those he, places are so amazing with, you know, mm -hmm. they all have great fishing. 
no, he, he said he tried it a couple of times and just didn't, uh, didn't work for him. Didn't flip any switch in his, his, his head, but he liked, uh, he was really into woodworking and cabinetry. That was sort of his, his hobby was making furniture and stuff, which for my wife and I, when we were just married and <laughs> couldn't afford much, uh, getting furniture, homemade furniture out of oak and teak was, was kind of nice. <laughs> right. No kidding. Yeah. So then how did you get started? It was. It actually traces back to England. I had a neighbor across the street by the name of Peter Hopley, and he course fishing was big there. Um, I didn't really get into fly fishing, but every uh, Sefton Park in Liverpool had a pond, and uh, you know, carp were the sort of the, the signature fish, the premier fish you were trying to get. But you would chase roach, perch, rudd, uh, bream. A pile of others. I probably missed a whole pile. But anyway, you would go down. I remember, you know, I must have been five or six, but it's just little fragments of your memory at that time. Um, going into some tackle shop and buying maggots with uh, Peter. And then we would go down and you'd set up a, you know, basically float fishing with baits and you had to keep net. You kept everything. And then at the end of the day, you released them all. There was no, you know, game fishing over there. As I later became, you know, you killed trout and salmon. Um, whereas coarse fish, you, you release them and you, yeah. So, um, that's so strange because to me, it's always like kill the coarse fish, but wait, why not just release them at the time of, why would you collect them all? I'm not sure. I was five or six, so I didn't know you just caught one through it in the key and this keep nets were you stake them to the bank and then they, you know, they were kind of tubular and went out six or seven feet and you would just throw everything in there. I think it comes there's a lot of competition fishing over in uh, Europe and in England, both fly fishing and course fishing. And I think that's where you would keep your fish, you know, and uh, when the judges came around and you had to weigh your, you know, the different weigh in points, you had to, you know, show your fish and weigh them. And, and then maybe you got to let them go after that. But at five or six, I was just, that's what we did. So that's what right. I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So then you come to Canada and mm-hmm. then do you remember the first time you went fishing here? Yes. Uh, my dad bought me a little spin casting rod with the, uh, I remember used to get a little rubber practice casting weight on it, like a little rubber teardrop dumbbell thing. And I remember being in the backyard trying to cast this thing. It was white. It was a white blank, you know, push button. So you fire it and usually it lands right at your feet, right? Cause you got to <laughs> figure the whole timing of it all. And then, um, we were on, um, the Chilliwack or the Vetter river. And I remember because my my dad's uh, good friend at the time, Jerry, was a fly fisherman. Now that I look back, it's all these little things that flash back at the time. I didn't think much of it, but he had the wicker creel and the bamboo fly rod. And he he took a couple of fish. And I just remember how smelly they were in that creel at the end of the day. Um, But I was uh, using my little spin caster, giving my dad a heart attack because I must have been maybe seven. And I was running all over log jams like a oh mouse. And of course, as a parent, you'd be like, oh, my God, <laughs> he's going to fall through. Right. But I I didn't know. But I didn't fall through. So, yeah, that was my first time was fishing on the bed. I don't think I caught a thing. Was um, it for salmon, steelhead or trout? Oh, I think we were just fishing for resident trout at the time. Right. I remember it, it wasn't. It wasn't the veteran you and I remember from um, winter steelheading or the coho returns. Um, that was typically the two times I used to hit that river, but it was warmer. I remember, you know, maybe it was late fall or something like that. But there was no salmon because it was it wasn't crowded. That's for sure. I think yeah, we were right. in the upper. I think we were in the upper Chilliwack as I look at it because we we weren't down on the lower section. We were above Vetter Crossing. Right. Oh, it's so, so beautiful up there. Well, no wonder yeah, why it's, it's stuck. So then at that point, where does that put us with your age? Are you around 10? 
Uh, no, still living in Chilliwack. So that would have put me, I would say, six, no, even six or seven. Okay, so really quite young. And Mm -hmm. then as you started to move over, walk me through your fly fishing career or your fishing career in general. Was it something that, because I'll be honest, I didn't realize you had all those, you know, quote unquote, real jobs. (laughs) I've just always assumed that you were solely in the fly fishing industry because that's when I, I mean, you're just such a big name in fly fishing. So when did your entrance into the industry happen? That would have started, um, you know, I picked up fly fishing uh, early 20s, really got seriously into it. I had a friend who I played hockey with at the time, was trying to get me out to fly fish and yeah, 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 you know. And then my wife and I, early in our marriage, we were over on Cameron Lake on Vancouver Island, uh, known for brown trout. We had been there a week and I think I had, you know, I was just trolling around and trolling docks, Bratleys and flatfish. And I think we had one poor little 11 inch rainbow on that. The only reason I knew he was on there is I decided it was time to change uh, whatever we were using. And as I reeled in, the poor thing was hanging on there because he weighed less than the weight that was used to drag everything down. So we got nothing. And I remember sitting around one evening uh, where the campground was, there was the outflow, I think into the little qualicum. And this, my wife and I looked back, it was almost like, Roderick Haig Brown walked by. It was this traditional wicker creel, fly rod, hip boots, walks in t- into the lake up to about his thighs or his knees, fishes for an hour, catches a number of t- trout, keeps a couple, and leaves. And it was kind of this surreal fog, you know, and little flips, uh, switch flips in my head. Maybe I should, um, you know, follow up with Richard, my friend, and go fishing. So we went out. He gave me some rudimentary casting lessons, you know, knew enough, you know, spent less time, more time hitting myself and breaking it just typical with an old fiberglass rod. And we went up to the Skagit the following weekend and I caught a fish uh, on a dry fly. I still remember it. Um, his father had caught a fish and let me play for a little bit with it because I, I was just beating the water to a froth as, as, as most of us were when we were first learning. And, um, but then, um, so that was pretty neat. But then there was fish rising. Uh, I remember it was it was downstream of Twenty Six Mile Bridge, I think, as I look back, and it was a log jam, and I was you know basically perpendicular. There was fish sliding out from underneath the log and taking taking I think ants. Um, and uh, so I put a fly on. Fish came up and ate it. I didn't miss the take. Probably a good thing because most of us. You know, as we get more experienced, we get a little more anticipation and pull the fly out of the fish's mouth. I didn't know enough, right? I probably had so much slack. I probably did try to set early, but by the time I got all the slack out of the system, um, you know, the, the hook, the fish had a chance to take the fly. And I remember I had never fought a fish like, like I'd caught, you know, growing up, we caught bullheads off the dock on Vancouver Island, pile perch and, you know, um, big, you know, big cabazon. The odd time we get a ling caught. I remember going out. Uh, an inflatable raft when I was in my uh, teens in school. We would go out to these markers wrapped around in kelp, and we'd spent our allowance on about three buzz bombs, a tray of anchovies, and uh, we'd eventually lose that. And then I remember wrapping tinfoil around a hook. 
right? <laughs> and we'd catch rock cod, uh, rock bass. Oh, it right? works. Well, yeah, yeah I guess oh, why worked. not? Yeah, yeah. And then we'd take them home because, of course, you had to, <laughs> it was just what you did, right? And uh, so, yeah, I had, that's the kind of fishing I'd done, but I had never caught a fish on a fly rod and had that total connection between you and the fish, no weight, no, no gear in between, and just, I, that's it. That's, I knew that from that moment forward, that's what I want. And I just became a sponge. I, I remember going to the library, taking out books, you learn. And then I always liked biology in school and those kind of things. So the whole entomology and bug thing, that really appealed to me, right? Cause it was, you know, for the, for the first time I felt connected with nature. I understood I could see things. Whereas before that, I would just put the green thing on, the red thing on, the silver one, because so-and-so said, so there was no rhyme or reason. So that's sort of where a fly, and then I, I haven't done anything, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I still play around a little bit with conventional gear now and then, but I much prefer, you know, where I am in Alberta now, I chase walleye on the fly. Not because they're particularly great game fish on the fly. No, nothing against walleye. I'm not here, <laughs> but um, um, but you're not supposed to, to catch them, right? That's not a fly rod fish in most people's eyes, but they bah, are. Bah. <laughs> <laughs> if it swims and eats, I'm interested in chasing it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Well, I've got a few mm-hmm. questions for you here. So sure. while you've got your, you know, real job, I hate saying that. While you've got your nine to five. Traditional, so your traditional (laughs) job. Were you obviously you were still fishing, but at any point were you thinking, hmm, I might like to venture into the fly fishing industry? Yeah, that started to, um, you know, I start, I joined the Osprey Fly Fishers. You know, I wanted to learn more, and uh, a club was a way, you know, to do it. I remember taking a a night school fly fishing course, and, um, you know, the, the instructor um, recommended, you know, was a member of the club and and said, you can come out. So, you know, that was pretty nervous because you just walk into this. You're an individual in strangers, right? It's just very intimidating. But they welcomed um, the president at the time, Don McDermott, was very welcoming, you know, which was nice. And and um, you just started participating like anything. You get involved and you tried to do as much as you could and learn. And then they had a newsletter and I started writing um columns you know i just experiment dabbled in writing and um i started i actually did a fly column in there called phil's fly box where i would do um flies uh in every issue and this was back when things were printed on was it a gestetner was that the machine they used to call those things you know the hand crank things um and i'm really dating myself um and uh so started writing there and then thought i'm Somebody said, you're not half bad at this. I went, okay. Um, I've always been conscious with my writing. I still don't think <laughs> I get very – because to me, it's a total exposure of yourself, right? Like there's, um, you can get torn to pieces or, you know, or just find out that uh, you use the wrong words, the wrong tone, mm. the wrong – And you, you stop trusting yourself because you read your words every year and you're like, oh, how did that get published? So you just lose all faith in yourself because you're so critical of your own writing. Yes. I I understand. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so so you stuck with it. And, and why did you get that job? Was there something or that role with them? Was there something special about your flies or your writing? Were you the only one who volunteered? I mean, why do you think (laughs) pretty well it like most of those volunteer, you know, most clubs, when I speak to clubs and I'm sure you've seen it with your own speaking, um, if you close your eyes, you're, 
at, at your own club meeting. You know, it's a large group of people that not everybody shows up and a small percentage of that group actually is the driving force um, that goes with it. There's always financial challenges and what should we do challenges and we need volunteers and we need help. And, you know, it's funny because I, I, some of the clubs, they kind of say, I'm sorry you had to hear that. I says, oh, I have to tell you, you are not alone. This is every club meeting is exactly the same uh, issues with getting people out, uh, generating funds, um, what to do with those funds when you have them. That can, you know, anytime you get a large sum of money involved, it can get kind of <laughs> interesting, <laughs> you know, some, some pretty healthy discussions. So that that gave me the confidence to know, well, I'm going to try and see if I can get a, a magazine article written, right? Ah, okay, yep. So that led to that interest. And that was back when you, there was no email. You would type out a letter and send it off and wait. And then you'd get, you know, typical, the polite rejection letter. You know, your article does not meet our editor, does not meet our editorial needs. I remember, I remember that because it was common to a lot of them. And, and so eventually I got the guts um, to pick up the phone. And I phoned the editors and had some conversations. And I remember I spoke to Art Sheck at American Angler Magazine. And Art was great because what he told me, my subject matter, I was like, you know, how to tie, you know, how to fly fish lakes. He said, way too broad, right? I want you to go home or go sit down and write down everything that goes into fly fishing lakes. All You know, basically a bullet you know, I was on page seven, I think, just right. Well, there's rods, there's lines, there's flies, there's reading the water, blah, 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 and on and on and on and on and on. And then I um, sent a submission back on how to fish coronamid larva, bloodworm, and he bit, right? And that was the first one. And then he took two others after there, an article on scuds, um, and that sort of started. And then I just started chasing around. And ironically, as a Canadian, I could not get a Canadian magazine interested in me. So I had had a number. I had articles already published in Fly Fisherman, American Angler, uh, Fly Tire Magazine, um, a little bit with the Amato publications. I remember talking to the editor of uh, BC Magazine. We both know, asking, "Well, how come you don't write for us?" Because you rejected me. And he, oh, <laughs> and I, now I was I, rejected I, too. Actually, come oh, yeah. to think I of think it. that's part of. I think that's part of the. At the time, it's horrific, right? You just, oh man, I'm never going to do this, and I'm never going to. And it's just taken off from there. And that led to deciding I thought about writing a book because there was no um, books on, you know, I got into still water fly fishing. Well, that's my next question before Sorry, you go into I'm the hopping into, ahead. <clears throat> no, that's okay. Before you go into the book though, why? Because when I hear a little bit more about your history, I would have assumed that you would have become an avid salmon, steelhead, anything sea mm -hmm. run angler. Yep. But you went to um, still water. Yeah, I guess, and I, I, I can't recall, you know, I went on fish outs, as we called them. Every month there was a, an outing, and I remember fishing the mouth of the Harrison River when you could go down there and, and catch uh, pinks and chum, and that was a lot of fun on a seven-weight, you know, because that's all I had was a seven-weight. And um, But those were all seasonal, and then, of course, fishing systems like the Chilliwack Better, which get very populated at certain times of the year. That was challenging to, to, to get there. And, uh, you know, the, the lakes were just accessible. And I think we did, you know, I went up to Corbett Lake. They used to, BC Federation of Fly Fishers used to hold their AGM up there. So we did go up there every year. And I guess it was just Stillwater fishing 
you know, was more easy. It wasn't as seasonal as cutthroat fishing, even though they were around all year, but there was certain times you'd be better. And of course the anadromous stuff and steelheading, if you want a decent steelhead, you have to go up where you're, where you live part of the time up there now. And that was, that was a haul. Yeah. I still had a muscle car back then. I had a Z28, the (laughs) stupidest car for a fisherman to own, right? Especially somebody who works for ICBC. (laughs) Hey, cut that. Yeah. 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 I had that uh, Z28. I remember stuffing a float tube and, you know, if you went over a pebble, you ground, hit the ground out. So I knew that car had to go. (laughs) You needed a truck. Right. Right. <laughs> or something you could carry stuff in. So, uh, yeah, that's how the, the fly fishing started. And it just became apparent when you were trying to tie flies. And ironically, I didn't think I would enjoy tying flies. I took a fly fishing course first and kind of stayed away from fly tying. And then I guess I just decided, well, maybe I'll try this and took another night school course uh, in Coquitlam through continuing education. And, and I remember having the first session and then the teacher couldn't make the next two weeks, so we were on hiatus for two weeks. So I had the the ghillie. I had bought the ghillie at that time, and I was trying to learn how to tie flies by looking at pictures of flies in the ghillie, which the was the best as, book ever. Ever, yes. Ever. You must. And Brian it. Chen had written at that time, at you know, a yes, chapter, quite quite a bit of that book. He did so, all the entomology. He did he did a few yeah. chapters, and he did the entomology sections in there. So that really appealed to me again more the bugs. And uh, so, yeah, and then the fly time went, you know, initial frustrations at first, as I'm sure you can relate to, you know, especially when you, you've had one lesson, you know, I think the first fly we tied was called a Chernkoff's bloodworm. It was basically um, a wool, you know, a section of yarn, wool body, a, a rib and a few strands of pheasant tail. So that was our first fly. And now I'm trying to try halfbacks and all these other things. And I cannot figure it out. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. <laughs> I'm venting at my wife. This is, I'm never going to figure this out kind of thing. And then uh, thankfully he came back and the lessons and then, and, and, you know, it just started. So I kept practicing and tying and tying. And I guess some people thought I got not half bad at it. And that's what I would donate to uh, auctions at the club. I would do a fly plaque, you know, learning how to do shadow boxes. Uh, when there was no internet, you just had to figure it out, glue, trying to see what you could glue to a fly on a pinhead, you know, and then watch it all fall off or, you know, come back in the next morning. They've all fallen off. The epoxy hasn't held or it's, it, it kind of half fell off and then the epoxy sets and now your flies kind of sideways and that's, oh, yeah, (laughs) a lot lot of trial and error and character building. So yeah, that, that's what started. It started to become apparent that there wasn't a lot of, I couldn't find any resource for still water flies. So I got the idea that I would, write this book on, uh, you know, uh, fly patterns for still waters was, you know, as you know, with fly tying titles, they're not always the most, uh, they're not novel titles. You know, there's not some eye catching title that makes you go, Hmm, right. They're pretty describe what the book does. Um, and I went to, at that time I had, my tying had started. I was starting to tie flies for local stores like Babcock fly and tackle. That's now sea run in Coquitlam, uh, Ruddick's fly shop, uh, Michael and Young, I would tie flies for gear, basically, right? I would give them a, you know, and I, my niche, when I got into commercial fly tying, I thought I'm going to tie dry flies because nobody was doing that. And I knew why after, because <laughs> they're very proportionally demanding and hackle is not cheap. I tried to do it with cheaper Indian necks and things like that, but 
you know, once you at that time, Metz was it was before Hoffman's and, and then Whiting is what it is now. And of course, Metz is still around uh, and other manufacturers. But yeah, that was I can remember dumping five dozen. I tried I did Michelux edges, you know, that three tiered. It's a L care tail and three tiers of L care dub seal fur body hackle in front not a smart fly to decide to do as a commercial tire. You know, that's a fly as a tire. It, later in my commercial, if somebody asked you about it, you usually no, or I've never heard of it. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Cut this off. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's started doing that. So I, at that point, I was getting into the industry a little bit. I was starting to do a little bit of fly tying school uh, courses at these fly shops, um, getting involved. I actually thought of getting involved and buying a fly shop at one point. But uh, I worked a few weekends at a fly shop and decided I didn't want to do that. <laughs> that was a lot of, you know, packaging seals for getting into exhaustive discussions on uh, loop to loop versus nail knot connections, you know, uh, <laughs> um, all this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I got invited um, to go down to Denver at the time where the Fly Tackle uh, retailer show is. Uh, was is is it back there now? I can't remember. Oh, I, I think, think it is. Yeah, I think it's Utah this year. Last year, well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> two two years ago, it was Den- it was Denver. It went back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I went there and had a little duo tang. Remember what those were? Duo tang. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like your propos- duo tang. Yeah, yeah. yeah oh because that's what you put so the proposal in, right? Typed that. out, <laughs> and yeah. I went out and I there was a couple of publishers there, and I gave it to two or three of them. And I got home and Frank Amato called me, right? I never got an answer from the other ones, um, but he called me and the rest is history. I started work on my first book, right? How cool is that? Um, At the time, cool. And then the work kicks in, right? Because not only do you have to write when you do a fly time book, you have to take pictures. Pictures, yep. I hear that's the hardest part. Self-taught macro, macro photography. Again, there's no internet. You had no virtual, no digital imagery. It was all slides. So you would take a bunch of, you know, and you get them all back and throw them in the garbage. I would sit there with a loop and just in the garbage, in the garbage, in the garbage. I remember I took a photo uh, photography class at the San Mateo Fly Fishing Show. Or San Mateo. No, it wasn't the Fly Fishing Show. San Mateo was a uh, in the Ed Rice um Outdoor show? I can't remember exactly, but anyway, Sports, I took sportsman's a show. Sportsman show. That's right, the San Mateo Sportsman show. And Lefty Cray was doing a thing, uh, a session on photography, and he said something that stuck in my mind to this day. But, you know, photo- photographs are not like fine wine. They will not get better with a, a bad photograph. Is not like fine wine. It will not get better with age. So, it, throw it out early, right? So I remember my wife would just, I, you know, slide film was not cheap back then and you would exhaust the whole roll. And I had a little, every time I took a shot, I had, uh, you know, written down shot one was at this aperture, this speed, this lighting. Cause, and when you got one back that you liked, what the hell was I doing? So I could duplicate that. Right. Good point, and that's, yeah. I taught myself, um, how to, how to do macro photography. Cause nobody was, you couldn't find out much in the way of answers for, you know, um, local photography shops. If they weren't into it, they didn't know. And, uh, of course you, there was no internet, there's no email. There's you just a lot of walking into concrete walls and frustration and, but figured it out. And then everything went digital. So, <laughs> <laughs> Um, now you can crop and zoom in. You still have to have good basic photography skills and understand how it is. But, uh, you know, I, 
you know, if, you know, we hear some people struggling today with something like, oh, you, you haven't gone through slide film where you, there was no adjustment. There was, it was like raw. You, you couldn't do anything with it. Right. Oh, it's just frustrating. Yeah. So that was the first book and, and people seemed to like it. So what happened so, then? How, how to, is the response in Canada? I've always been curious about that. Good, good. Um, for, for that one, because there was nothing. I had found a niche nobody else had done. So it was, it was, um, I remember walking into Babcock, uh, or Sea Run at the time. I can't remember if it changed over at that point. Oh, it was, well, the book's over 20 years old, so I don't think it would have been Sea Run. And, um, yeah, the response was very positive. You know, it's a little scary because it's not just a magazine article now and the publishers invested in you, right? So, you know, you feel an obligation to them to make sure the book's successful and do everything you can. Again, this is pre-email. There's no social media. There's no way of promoting. There's no podcasts. There's no way <laughs> of anything to promote your book. It's just it gets out there and people accept it. So that led to speaking because I did a lot of research on that book on bugs. As I said, it all came back to that. You know, for, for 15 years prior to writing that book, I had either been doing you know, diet analysis or as throat pumps became more uh, common. Um, and, you know, I remember at Tonqua Lake taking my kids at the time, because you could always get it with a little, as you know, with a little toddler, you could get away with anything, right? Oh, he's so cute, right? Yeah, so, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but ask that man, because <laughs> they would, right? And I would look at their stomach samples, or I could see the looks on their face. These guys, fly fishermen are nuts, right? And I would see what was in them. And I just started simple notes, you know, I wasn't counting everything in, but okay, there was scuds, there was chronomids, there was some leeches in there, and what basic proportions, and I just put them on an Excel spreadsheet, you know, and over time, you had enough data and a, a little magic, you could turn it into a pie chart, all right? So that's those diet analysis charts that I put in that book, um, you know, they're BC-based. Um, it's funny, as I look at them now, there's, as I've moved out of the province, there's more you know, bait fish get on there. And then different, and as you learn more, it's the beauty of this sport, this addiction is you keep learning, you know, you, you don't stop learning till the day you stop breathing. Um, so, you know, more and more things come on, but that was, I, the book was written based on what the fish ate and the fly patterns to imitate those things in relative importance. So for my analysis, coronamids were number one and then scuds and then everything else. And, and what, what I was also doing after reading Jack Shaw's books was he had bugs in aquariums. So Phil says, I'm going to do this. And I set up aquariums, right? And we'd put these bugs in and put the weeds in and then watch them decimate each other, <laughs> right? There was no way you could ever get balance in an aquarium. There was always one, particularly a dragonfly nymph. They were just, they would, I had one, I put him in or her at, uh, I don't know, maybe an inch long in July, early July. And by October, it was two and a quarter inches long and had cleaned out all but three leeches out of this thriving aquarium. It had pulled out, um, you know, would rip caddis out of their cases. It would, it looked like a medieval, it looked like a Game of Thrones battle scene. There was just bits and pieces of carnage everywhere. Um, they'd eat each other. Um, it was definitely, you know, if you look at, ever got into tropical fish, it was a fish that, that it was a, a bug that didn't play well with others. <laughs> it was, it was total badass, right? So uh, they're but vicious. That's, uh, oh, nasty, nasty, uh, in a in a kind of cool way. The way they that jaw comes out. And so I was getting into, you know, bugs and 
raised in my, I had them in the garage in my home in Langley because my wife, Patsy, she knew darn well what that meant. Very tolerant, understanding wife uh, and um, would not allow them in the house because I had hatches in February. I had, I was joked. I had house spiders like you're used to seeing in, in Australia, huntsman style. <laughs> Um, so yeah, but a fascinating way to learn. And I had, you know, started to get to like entomologists like Rick Hafley, who's uh, become a good friend of mine down in the States, uh, aquatic entomologist by profession, merged as a, as a fly fisher. What a, what a great, like Brian, what a great combination, biologist and fly fisher. And, um, you know, so we would exchange, uh, information. I would make my observations. Um, I remember we had a UBC professor at one time, uh, speaking to the club, and um, I had got into a conversation with uh, with her and uh, I had seen things she had never seen before. Right. Because I had pictures to prove it. Right. Like, look, <laughs> they do those things. So I was just fascinated by all that stuff. And that's how Brian and I got to meet. Right. OK, so two questions on that. For, at the time, was chronomid fishing popular in British Columbia? Yes, but it was a tough, tough thing to learn because there were no strike indicators. There were no weighted flies. Um, you had to make the leader formulas were all at a maxima, you know, nice, supple maxima. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, I know streamer fishermen like using it, but for uh, for lake fishermen, it was the equivalent of yellow poly rope. Right. Um, so <laughs> not the most friendly for, and you had all these complex formulas, you know, different sections, little leader kits. I remember you bought this leader kit that was kind of U-shaped and you put the two, for tying blood knots and you put the two pieces of material in and then put this like a little peg and spin it around and then hold it and then push the two ends through, pull it and withdraw it. Cause it was, it basically, you know, blood knot for, for me, I've never been a big fan of it in small sizes cause it's just too fiddly triple surgeons, not all the way. So, um, yeah, so we would have to put all those together. And, uh, I remember my, I remember the, the first time I, you know, chronoms are important. I remember this, uh, elderly fly fisher, old timer, um, because I are one now, so I can say that, um, said, you want to catch fish in lakes? And I, well, absolutely, right? Because your first thought is, that's a lot of water. Throw something big in that water. Big dragonfly nymph, big leech. You know, how's a fish going to find that? I can't believe fish eat little tiny. And as we know, they make their living eating those small things. Um, so he opened his hand and had this, you know, traditional, no bead head, uh, black and gold, black body, gold rib, coronamid pupa about a size 16. And I looked down and I said, you gotta be kidding me. I am throwing that in all that water and a fish is going to find it. So there wasn't a lot of faith in, in uh, coronamid fishing at the time. Others were doing it. It was kind of this mystique thing, time served. And I remember being at a, one of those BC Federation of Fly Fishers fish outs in my float tube, first generation float tube that kind of looked like an inflatable toilet seat. Remember those ones? Yeah. Um, I think I still have it stuffed and I, <laughs> I can't part with it. Um, I don't know why, um, but uh, nobody buy it anyway. It's ridiculous. No, you know, it's just first generation, but, and casting this out and you'd let it, that leader sink for all eternity minutes, seemed like hours and just slowly crawling. this like just, half inch pulls at a time and all of a sudden there was a fish there i'm like holy christ this actually works <laughs> right and then once once you do it and then you get now i got this right you got the confidence and you start um going on it so that and that's still today my favorite way to fish is that floating line long leader of course now we have much better leader material much better 
fly patterns. Um, things sink better. You don't have to wait as long. Um, you know, the fly line technology, we actually have fly lines that are actually designed to throw um, those kind of lines. I've, I've had the good fortune to, to work with uh, uh, Rio to help develop uh, fly lines for just that situation. So, uh, and, and chucking indicators and all that stuff. So yeah, that's that chronomid fishing was big, but it was a, a time served kind of secretive cult, um, hard to learn, you know, Everything was against you from understanding the bugs to the equipment we had to use to nobody was telling you anything. It was kind of like macro photography all over again, right? And just frustrations. And then one day somebody blesses you and you've actually, you know, hit the pitch. <laughs> right. Yeah. How come and, Brian didn't write the book first? I don't know. He was probably know. busy doing his biology thing, but he would probably. have seen your book and he would have been very interested. So how did that whole relationship start? Well, yeah, because it was, you know, I'd actually take it. Brian at that time was doing uh, Stillwater schools um, at Lac Lejeune, I remember. And then he would come down to Ruddix and, you know, and him and I had got, you know, I just sort of, you know, talked to him. Right. And just got to know him and had conversations. And every once in a while, I'd phone if I was going to go up there. And he was always gracious enough to, you know, to give a I'm sure it was a, uh, you know, report just to, uh, you know, not give away to divulge too much, but uh, to help out. And then um, I guess it got out that I had bugs in my house and uh, he had to do a presentation down at Ruddix and called me up and can I borrow some bugs? So I showed up with you know, little buckets of bugs, <laughs> uh, all separated so they didn't kill each other on the drive. And um, we went out for dinner. Uh, there was a little um, um, Chinese restaurant across the street from Ruddix, and we sat down, and we found out we had a lot in common. Both had young families, both liked sports, um, obviously liked fishing and fly fishing, and decided we should go fishing one time. So we did, and it's just sort of snowballed from there and we have become, you know, he's just been, a, as you know, just, he's just a great guy and just so much knowledge in there and so such a nice person and such a sort of fun sense of humor. Everybody I think thinks Brian's pretty, you know, conservative and quiet, but he is, <laughs> he has that little sinister streak in him in a good way. Right. So <laughs> yeah, we, we have a lot of, fun. yeah, he is a lot of fun, a lot of fun. So yeah, we've just, and we just started doing things together. And I think we sort of both got in, we could be competitors with each other as I was starting to, you know, grow and, and, and have more success. Um, we just decided, why don't we just work together? Right. Be collaborative and be better than the sum of our parts, because uh, sometimes just comp I guess some of it was coming from my, you know, real job. If we want to do it, all the, you know, the confrontation and that was going on with that, you know, insurance and, and auto collision is, is, you know, it's a you know, it's a I learned a lot from it. But it was it's such a you know, something bad has to happen before those services are needed. And you don't see people at their best. And and, and you see a lot of, you know, unfortunate things, you know, there's you know, not every accident's just a little fender bender. There's some, as you can attest to, <laughs> some of them can be pretty serious. And and so it was, it was, it was just time for a change. I just needed to, you know, I, I wasn't what I, you know, I realized what pilot, you know, pilot didn't work out, but I always joke. Um, it wasn't flying. It was fly fishing. I got the memo, you know, I didn't read the memo right to the end. I just assumed. Um, and, and that, and it's just, again, these little events that snowball and some days you, 
it's a Kenny Rogers. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, right? Those days you got to be assertive and say, Hey, I, I can do that. Or you think about me. And other days you just got to sit there and let people find you. Right. And it hurts, right? Cause you, you're just being patient and, 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 uh, you know, it's, it, it's interesting how you, when you look back, people say, how'd you get, well, there was no, it wasn't a university course. You didn't take one one and then get two and then get three and then get four and have to do this. It just by hook and by crook and stumble, blind luck, <laughs> good fortune, all yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, faith here you in are. the universe. Yes. So was Stillwater Solutions your first joint project? Because I remember being in Michael and Young. Oh, God. 15 years ago? A long time ago. How old am I? No. Yeah, maybe. And you guys had a material. I just remember seeing Phil and Brian's material line. And to me, yep. you guys were legends, right? Just <laughs> these two. Whoa. Look at their names are printed on packaging. Um, tell me a little bit about that. When did that all start? That started, um, I believe, um, the folks at Fly Fusion uh, had they had that one fly show in Vancouver in the tennis bubble in Richmond, and Superfly was there, and Brian and I were speaking there, and Janice showed us um, some material. She had some ostrich hurl um, that was really fine fibered, and people were still using white ostrich hurl for gill materials. You know, so old school now, um, but still a great material, and. I looked at it and Brian looked at it and liked it. I said, boy, if, if you could dye this in different colors, this would be great for scuds and mayflies and a bunch of other applications. And, oh, okay. So, um, and then a couple of weeks later, we got a call. Would you guys like to come out to Edmonton? That's where Superfly was based. And we spent a weekend out there. And I remember driving from the airport to, you know, you visit places and you always do things like, well, I wonder if I could live here. <laughs> a little foreshadowing. Um, and uh, so, you know, we developed there. So there was a lot of back and forth with, we had picked a core through these discussions. We picked a core suite of colors and don't ask me, I can't remember them all. Uh, things like olive done, light olive, olive brown. We had our own colors we wanted, um, you know, and in, they had access to all the materials we had been trying to find, or you could get from this manufacturer, but not that. And it all came together in a line of materials, uh, fly tying materials specifically um, targeted for the challenges of, you know, tying still water flies when was that i'd have to have a look i may have some old literature somewhere but it's i can't remember but, but it, was it was a while was, ago it was, yeah it was a, it was a good because well i've been out in alberta six, 16 going on 17 years now so let's you know what it's because i that was already out when i moved here it was already at it least was probably two so, so it's probably Sorry, April, but maybe 18 years ago. <laughs> I am as old as I think. I was afraid you were going to say that. <laughs> okay. You're wearing it well, though. You're wearing it better than I am. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> but, yeah, it was a yeah. while ago. And then you guys also had that stretchy, like a floss, right? Well, we had, yeah, we had marabou's, ostrich yeah. hurl, uh, turkey quills, uh, dyed partridge, stretch floss, midge flex, no, that was no, oh. yeah. Midge flex was scud back, uh, stretch super stre uh, mid stretch floss, and then we had super white beads uh, because bead head patterns were just starting to really gain momentum. Um, and white beads, we wanted a really pure, stark, bright white, not a pearl white, but a really so they the super white beads we called them. I think, and it was a you could buy it only as a complete package. 
Uh, the refills were minimums of six. Um, so, uh, you know, over time that changed because some dealers said, well, I don't want six. I want two. I want three. I only sell this. And ironically, the, the, what surprised me the most was the most popular selling product in that line was black marabou, which you can get black marabou pretty well. We were always amazed at that. Not any of the sort of boutique colors. They were popular like Calabatus and Olive Dunn and, you know, Chaobras Green and all these crazy colors we came up with. Um, but Black Marabou was the was the uh, uh, the number one selling material. To- Is that lineup still available? Do you no. guys still sell that stuff? No, no. It's, it got shut down. Um, you know, Brian and I decided to move on. Uh, because it evolved, we started doing flies out of the materials, and we even did a co-wrote a book together called Stillwater Solutions Recipes that had um, flies um, tied with the materials in a book form. So uh, yeah, they, and then it, we got into you know hand-tied flies as well by a manufacturers too. Coming up, Bill and I continue our conversation. Again, head on over to anchor.doors.com and look for the Masterclass tab. There you'll find all of our classes, including Brian's and other guests that you've heard on the show. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So tell me about your first book with Brian. What was the book called? The book was called Stillwater Solutions Recipes. So it was part of the Stillwater program that had originally started with materials. And then the next progression was to do a book uh, featuring some of our favorite flies uh, tied with those materials. It was a unique little book. It was um, viral or spiral bound, whatever they call it. And uh, it could sit on your desk in like a a tripod triangle kind of uh, shape and you could flip the pages over and follow the uh, narrative steps and, and tie the flies. So yeah, that went, uh, I, I think there was one run of that book, uh, a few thousand, 3000 copies, but I think it's out of print right now. You might be able to catch some of it through some, a few distributors still have a few copies on hand, but that was sort of the evolution of, of Stillwater. And then it rolled into Brian and I then developed um, the next step in the Stillwater Solutions line was actual fly patterns um, that people could, you know, purchase because not everybody ties flies. In fact, that's, I think when I last saw an Aftima study that was with the fastest growing segment of fly fishing was, you know, the, the you know, hand-tied flies. Um, so we, we, we did that. And then we decided, you know, we both love our coronamid fishing, as you, as you probably know. So we got to, you know, we, we have these times we get together and sitting staring at each other or staring at an indicator and have these discussions about life and everything. And we should do a Coronamid DVD set. So that's what we did. We did the Conquering Coronamids uh, DVD, a two-part DVD. We did a 
introductory, you know, introduce you to the insect and why it's important and the basics of strike indicators. And then volume two was all about advanced techniques. Uh, so more advanced indicator um, techniques, uh, floating line, long leader stuff, which was sort of the first way you learned to fish chironomids, actually. Uh, sinking line techniques, um, some dry and emergers, uh, droppers, because although poor Brian can't fish droppers in BC, <laughs> I tease him about that constantly. And, um, you know, we had a worldwide audience we were trying to appeal to. So both those have done uh, very, very well. They came out in, I think we ran an original thousand, and I think we were well over 3,000 sold of the of the DV, the hard DVDs themselves. And now, of course, everything's digital download. So they've sort of morphed into there. You can still get uh, copies because we still have a few left. But, uh, yeah, it's proven to be very, very successful. So. Let me just dive deep sure. and it's going to be uncomfortable for a minute. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a while for a while there were people saying that you were riding Brian's coattails? How did the industry receive you and this new collaboration? That's, that's actually a great question because, um, I, I don't believe I was. Brian and I were working because we were friends and we had, I don't think we ever directly talked about it, but just, it just made more sense for us to be work together to be better than the sum of our parts rather than be competitors doing the same thing. It just made sense. So, um, I remember one time Brian and I were at a show and somebody referred to us like Rick Hafley and Dave Hughes, who are two American authors, and said, you know, Brian is like Rick Hafley with a biology background, and Phil is like Dave Hughes, which I took as a compliment because Dave's a great writer, um, which I still don't think I am. But uh, that's how it's sort of messed. So we've never had that. But I will say, once I moved from BC to Alberta, I did get out from underneath Brian's shadow a little bit. Um, and in a good way, it wasn't like I was trying to escape anything, but it just allowed me to sort of um, step sideways a little bit and create my own parallel path that complemented the both of us because I got to, you know, experience different fisheries. I, you know, I fished predominantly in British Columbia for, for 35 years. And all of a sudden I was fishing in Washington state, Oregon, Wyoming, Montana, going down to Argentina, uh, branching further east into Canada and doing my own schools and trips and, and really spreading my own brand that complemented what Brian and I were doing. So overall, it worked very well. Yeah, I watched it happen. And I really, and I actually, I've never heard anyone say that, but I, being from BC, mm -hmm. I know how difficult that mm -hmm. crowd can be. There's a lot of talking and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so I just was wondering if you ever suffered with that. And then I just do remember watching you kind of veer off in your own direction mm -hmm. and become your own brand, which was really cool to watch. Well, some of it was by financial necessity too, right? Because Brian had, you know, the, he'd worked for the uh, ministry and, and then um, into the uh, Freshwater Fisheries Society of BC. And now he's, you know, enjoying the benefits of his hard work in retirement and, and gets to, whereas you and I are like, I need to pay a mortgage. So how am I doing that? <laughs> um, so, you know, and I, like Brian, we both like to teach and give and, and pay it forward because we, we, we were been, you know, I've learned a lot from Brian and others like yourself and, and, and you want to pay that forward because we don't get hit with a beam of light overnight and all of a sudden we're 10% smarter. We learn, right? And we, we interact with others. And, and sometimes it's a totally different, it's a saltwater uh, fly fishing discussion and some techniques, some setup is like, Oh, wow, that'll really help me 
in my Stillwater game, right? I'm going to do that, right? And people come, where'd you learn that from? Uh, I read it on the internet. I talked with so-and-so, and that's how they do it. Uh, saltwater, like the non-slip loop knot. Um, learn that from Lefty Cray. And I'm thinking, if it's good enough for tarpon, it should be good enough for trout. So, <laughs> And it has been. So uh, there's lots of that. Sometimes I... I remember being at shows, seeing some, I would watch somebody tie a sailfish fly, you know, it's 14 inches long and, you know, totally non-trout. And I'd say, you need to see that. And I'd have people go, no, I'm never fishing sailfish. That's not the point. You should see how he manipulates flashaboo. He just solved my problem that I've been trying to deal with, trying flashaboo bodies on chronomids or something like that. So there's so many transferable skills and, and knowledge out there. If you just keep your eyes and ears wide open. You learn a ton. Yeah, that's something I've never understood, you know, like we do our, we do monthly tying nights for our mm-hmm. members. And as you know, because you're one of yeah. our presenters <laughs> and, and you'll be, you know, you'll have someone say, oh, I don't tie crab flies. Yes, but a fly is just a collection of techniques on top of a hook. Yep. You could use mm-hmm. some of those techniques in other, in other patterns. So. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Yep. So, so what about you? Did you ever venture out that way in, into the salt? A little world? bit. I did a little bit, a couple of trips down to Mexico, um, which as soon as I hooked my first bonefish, that was all I thought about for six months, right? It's like catching my first steelhead on the Dean. That was it. I was to hell with still water. So I was going chase. You know? <laughs> definitely. You know? And then reality kind of kicks in. And when you can get back up there and the financial realities of that and, and just doing the still water stuff and, um, as I may have said earlier, it was just, you know, people say, well, you should start talking about nymphing on rivers and streams and all that stuff. And I thought about it for a while. And then I thought, you know, I've just spread myself way too thin. This is sort of my niche. And, and sometimes I like to delve into those other things as more recreational. I just want to go fishing, right? I don't want to, you know, have to maybe do a, a hosted trip would be okay, but those kind of things, just enjoy the fishing. So I'd love to do more saltwater fishing. It seems every time I look into a trip, it's right smack dab in the still water season, right? That's why Argentina mm-hmm. works out so well for me because I generally like to go down there now, November, December, when our season's wound down uh, and their season's just picking up. It, it works out rather well. So yeah, that's, uh, I'd love to do more of it. I'd like to, you know, fish every day, but unless it's some kind of, share agreement with Google or some master company that I'm just getting residuals from. Um, there's some realities you got to work, right? It's not, yeah. it's not all play. No. Well, you've just brought me right into my next point. Do you ever, or my next question, mm-hmm. do you ever feel trapped in your niche? Um, not so much trapped, but our niche, like fly fishing is a niche. And I chose a niche of a niche <laughs> that... Um, you know, it's not in the trout world. Obviously, everything is still, you know, and, and you know, there's such great river and stream. This isn't a, a negative thing. It's just that's the reality is most people uh, in North America for trout are river and stream anglers. And then they slowly see the, the charms of stillwater fishing. You know, I, uh, in my in my new book, it just came out in a whole chapter, like why, you know, why lakes? Why would you want to go fish a lake, right? And 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 that was, you know, talking about sort of the crossover and some of the intimidation people feel about you know the river trout stream you can walk across it you it's got boundaries i can see the other side i can see likely looking places whereas you look at a huge lake you may not even be able to see the other side you sure can't wait it it just looks all the same and then people get um pretty you know it's pretty daunting for them it's like how the hell do i find fish in all this water right but uh so it you know i talked about those kind of things but yeah it was um sometimes it's like man if i if i was a, a euro nympher i'd be 
I'd be rocking and rolling more, right? But you just keep every day, you just take one bite of the elephant and just keep, you know, plowing along. But the good thing is it's people like myself and a few others, we're the only ones in that niche. So it's never going to be saturated. So in some ways we are the big fish and maybe the small pond, but it's fun. <laughs> no complaints. But there's never any sort of resentment to being put in that box. I know, and I'll just give you some context. I know mm -hmm. for myself, you know, I'm the steelhead girl and it's like, well, I do more than that. Yeah. And then with Simon, you know, Simon uh, Gosworth, he's yeah. the spay guy, but he's going, I'm actually a better single hand caster than a spay caster. Uh, he is the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful casters I ever see. I hate him. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he really is. He really yeah. is. But what about you? Do you ever kind of want to scream? You know, yeah. look, I can oh, yeah. do, I'm not just a one trick pony. And then how do you, how do you navigate through that? Well, it's funny. Sometimes, sometimes you just, you do by showing, right? Like I've, I've nymphed with some very famous, I fished the Deschutes one time and, um, you know, I'm being watched and coming off the river and wow, you, you can nymph a river. You really, you do, you do pretty good. You're doing all the right things at all the right times. I said, well, I sort of learned to fly fish rivers first and I'm a huge study. You know, I, I often look to other fly fishing disciplines for answers to questions I may have in still waters, whether it's leader setups, uh, presentation challenges, and just like trying to get your chronomid to sink as deep as it can is very similar to nymphing on a river as far as level leaders and, you know, the whole Euro nymphing thing, the pattern weight. There's a lot of, if you look at it um, with the right set of eyes, there's a lot of similarities to the same problem, right? That you can pull over to your niche and go, wow, that, that really works for that. That solves my problem or that that's something to consider and try. But um, yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've, you know, the TV shows I filmed a lot of times when you're assigned with a guide, the first hour is a test. You know you're being tested, right? So they'll put the fly there. So I do because I'm not going to go there and make a fool of myself. So I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I have pulled the hoops out. And if I know I'm the chance of casting to rising trout in tight places, I'm going to try and practice and make sure I can put the fly on the target, right? So, um, and that's, we don't fly cast enough. I know I'm rambling a bit here, but that's one of the things I think somebody at a show said once we were off going to uh, the fly fishing show where I speak at a lot of times you do the workshop. So you got to leave early. And it's somebody said in the, we're all going together as a group in the uh, hotel bus minivan. And somebody says, it's funny about fly fishers because in other sports, basketball players shoot hoops, golfers drive balls, um, soccer players practice drills, fly, fly fishers, we tie flies. That's how we practice, right? Because <laughs> we rarely, you know, we all go out in a field and everybody in the neighborhood, there's no fish in the grass, you know, careful, you don't catch a dog. It's like, yeah, I, I know, I know, right? Or you got to explain it or you give an impromptu casting lessons. And it's like, that's great. I've introduced somebody to the sport, but I never got my goals accomplished that I wanted to. So it's funny, we don't tend to do that, right? Um, same with knots. We all practice them on the lake and fumble them around and break them and, you know, sit at home and get comfortable with them. So yeah, it's it's challenging sometimes. It's challenging, but it's kind of fun too to sort of lie in the woods and and uh, surprise some people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> as, as I'm sure you've experienced on the flats or or chasing other exotic fish and, and other fishing opportunities, uh, fly fishing opportunities. Like, wow, that girl could cast. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> funny. I actually fall apart the second that somebody is filming or watching so i'll be casting like a champion mm -hmm. and then somebody will float by and i just fall apart i have mm -hmm. the worst anxiety really? of anybody I've, oh like like to the point of extreme 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 
I just don't, won't even cast because I, I just look like a total ass. <laughs> well, I've done that too. I have done some, the first, one of the first shows I ever um, filmed was NBC on Jocko Lake, just near Kamloops. And um, the host caught a fish and, you know, your fish, it's, it's early spring. We're fishing indicators and really skinny water because that's the best way to do it, right? You'd be, we were all around sunken debris. We'd have just been break, you know, hooking trees all day. And I decided while he was releasing his fish, he turned, the camera boat was sort of behind us very close. So he caught his fish, turned to the camera to release it. Of course, I'm there with him to, you know, commentate and all that. And, uh, oh, well, nice fish, the usual stuff that you do. And we hear this bang, crash, splash. Well, guess whose rod got ripped out of the boat on camera? mine right awesome. and and of course this is my first or second tv show ever like this is you know my my awakening right that something's good these all these little things that start in your early in your career that may uh, amount to stuff something or just destroy you and you're just one of the the many that crashed and burned on takeoff and uh the friend of mine gord honey who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago he was a former uh, in the TV industry. He said to the camera, keep the camera rolling. This is going to be good. <laughs> Friend, what are friends for, right? And sure enough, there's my rod going down the channel on Jocker with just the tip sticking out of the water. And it's like chasing a dog on a leash as, you know, I picked up the anchor and I'm laughing away because it's not my gear. It's the show's gear. So I guess I didn't have that. Oh, my God. All my, my best stuff is in the lake. And as I get closer to the boat, it picks up speed. And as I get slowed it as and then it chases away and the distance becomes it slows down i picked up speed i eventually got it picked it up fought the fish for 10 seconds or so and then lost it right but it was so funny right but it was like oh my god uh, what have i done <laughs> right? yeah. no i've had a i've had a few and i guess over the years you just get more comfortable with yourself and and just people say to me sometimes that's great you guys do that you break fish off it's like tying demonstrations you bust thread oh i'm glad it happens to you it happens to all of us Right. It's yeah. And part of you, when you're tying, if you're not busting thread, you're probably not tying with the right thread tension anyway. Right. So you need to be, you know, there's times when it, it always breaks at the wrong time. It never breaks at the right time. It's always when you got that little tiny space to finish the head. Think it's like, Christ, now I got to put this thread back on and build up the head so it doesn't unravel on me. Yeah. So, uh, no, I share, I share with you, uh, on that. Um, you know, and as you get more comfortable with it, you just sort of, you know, that's, I'm human. Talk to me about flies. How come when I bring my chronomid box to the river, I get scoffed at? How can a river and a lake chronomid be that different? They're not. The only difference I'd say is the size. Because river, that's why they're called midges. Because, you know, if you fish a, ri a river like the Missouri in Montana, which, you know, that was one of the things living in Alberta about three years here before I realized there's the state of Montana right south. It's like, ooh. That's a place a fly fisher would want to go. So I get down there um, a fair bit and uh, with the, the folks from Montana Fly Company because uh, they're just across the hills in, in Columbia Falls. So, um, and I've got to fish it a couple times and they call them midges because an 18 is a big one, whereas that's a small lake coronament, right? So, but they still work. Um, there's no, you know, Today's chronomid patterns are bead, body, and rib. You know, a zebra midge works just as well in a lake as it does in a in a river. Wait, they fish smaller in the rivers than they do mm -hmm. in the lakes. Yeah, how They're, does that work? You you just, think that you'd want to fish bigger because the water's moving and the fish don't but, have time to see. But in see. spring creek systems like the Missouri, the, the midges are just small, and I think it's just a the species that live there, and I think because the water's moving all the time, they get more hatch cycles in a year. So. The growth in between from egg to adult 
is less. Whereas some of our still water species, because ice comes on, they're spending a year or more in that larval stage before they transform. And it just, you know, they just evolve to get bigger, right? Because I do even, you also see size variations on lakes from latitudes. So things tend to be bigger in the north. I think it's the influence of winter. Mother nature is not cruel enough to make chronomids try and punch through 24 inches of ice in the middle of February. Um, so, but further south with open water, like when I go down and speak in California, size 14 chronomids, a monster, right? It's huge. And then I show them some of the, be- you know, I'll bring some of the, you want to see big, check out my bomber box from British Columbia where we're fishing eight, two X and they're just, they've ne- they can't fathom a chronomid that size. It's just unbelievable to them. But I was down in Oregon a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic uh, doing a speak and they took me on the Rogue River and um, not the steelhead part, the trout. But, well, the steelhead to come up there, but uh, um, one of the, the, the Hopefully he doesn't kill me for saying this, but one of his flies he was fishing with was a, about a size 12 ice cream cone on one of his droppers, and trout loved it, right? The good thing about trout and fish in general is you don't get entomology classes, right? They're not down there with a book going, wait a minute, nope, wrong time <laughs> of the year, wrong bug, I'm not eating that, right? So I've 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 recalled taking, you know, catching a fish on a lake, and it's got another fly. Somebody's broken off in its lip, and... It's a stonefly nymph, a golden stone nymph. Well, they don't live in lakes, but trout don't care. It looks good. They eat it, right? Or they sample it, right? They, mm-hmm. That's their hands. They're always putting things in their mouth they shouldn't. Somebody said to me, they're like a two-year-old. Everything's in their mouth. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about what about weights, weight on the fly? Mm-hmm. Do, would you fish an unweighted midge in the river system, or would you always have some sort of a bead head on it? Some sort of a bead head, because the bead head adds weight, but it's also got that little bit of flash and attraction stand out in the crowd. You know, catch some light. You know, I firmly believe trout and fish in general, and as a steelhead angler, you know this too, they don't always take our flies out of a feeding response. They're samplers. Uh, there's attraction, there's territory, you know, territoriality, aggression, uh, curiosity. Um, so there's times when um, like today, you know, today I was before talking to you, I was out on the water with my oldest son and they weren't eating the imitative stuff. So I pulled out the sweep line with a blob on one end and this apps worm that looks, it's got rubber legs, floss everywhere. It's going through the water like it's having a seizure and just ripped around at high pace and got a fish, right? Um, and that fish, there's no way, you know, the, the blob was hot pink with, bright yellow. It's a friend of mine's, uh, Matt's, he calls it the pink dancer with a shark. It's just like, there's nothing in a lake that looks like that. But rainbows love that thing. They just smoke it, right? And it's a great way to find fish. Maybe do careful throat pump analysis and then re- 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 you know, retune your, your presentation based on what you find, right? So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, do that a lot. What were they eating today? Chronomids. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and some water boatmen. Um, here in Alberta, oh. our lakes have some incredible water boatmen and back swimmer activity, um, particularly in mid-September. It's, you know, in BC, I always remember a bit of a more focused two-week event. Uh, they'll start early September and run right till freeze up. They'll take them, and it's just some incredible fishing, just different bugs. So they're, they always seem to eat them. Um, you know, if they come across one, there's always one or two in there. So it's a good thing to have off a dropper. Um, but they were eating – we were fishing um, – you know, a larger, more attractor style coronamid, uh, a little flashier, um, stand out in the murk. And, and just because I'd got fish on a tractor, so I was just trying a little bit of a flashy, uh, flashier, non-traditional coronamid and then a blob up above it. <laughs> so is a, is a blob the booby or is it just truly a blob? It's truly a blob. A booby has 
round foam eyeballs at the front. And then the, uh, oftentimes a, a long or a short marabou tail or maybe some flash and then that fritz body material. That's the important part is that English fritz. It's a chenille-like material. There's different types now. There's Daphne fritz, jelly fritz, uh, traditional fritz, slush jelly. That just, um, just, there's just so many variations coming out. And then the blob is literally just that fritz and, and no foam. And then we put, I put bead heads on them because it's in England, it's a pattern they cast and strip as an attractor. Um, it's particularly effective. These attractor flies are particularly effective on fre- freshly stocked fish because they are new. They've been living in a pond their entire life. They get thrown into a lake. They have to go learn. So they try to, they sample and play with everything. So they're very susceptible to that. In England, it's called stocky bashing, right? You just rip and strip and catch lots of fish. But we also fish them um, with under an indicator, just like chironomids, particularly in the late summer, early fall, when fish have been out in deeper water, where it's more oxygen, cooler, and they're feeding on zooplankton. So zooplankton, they just swim through and filter feed. Basically, it's really high in calories, easy for them to eat. But of course, nobody's going to tie size 96 flies, at least I won't. And uh, so we use blobs that match or approximate the color of the zooplankton because it can be pinky red, it can be chartreuse, it can be washed out. They have all these crazy colors like prawn and banana and milkshake that have nothing. Biscuit that is kind of a washed out pink. But if you look, if you're somebody to go buy biscuits, like what the heck color is biscuit? So we use blobs for that. There's another one called a fab, which has a really neat story. So in a number of the English fisheries, um, flies with foam in the front, particularly boobies, were being banned. Um not because there's a risk with a booby or any foam-based fly that fish can swallow them because if you lose contact with your fly and because the 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 this is what I believe that when you're on a, a leader and you lose contact that the buoyant nature or the neutrally buoyant nature of that fly is going to put a little sag in your leader fish comes up and grabs on doesn't feel anything and its natural inclination is to swallow right and you miss it and then all of a sudden he's tight you bring him in and the flies you know, you've piped them basically. So you've got to cut the fly out and hopefully it'll work its way out. Right. So you, you've got to stay tight to them like that. So that's sort of the perils sometimes think with boobies, but I think it was more because a lot of the English fisheries, you pay for a bag limit, as I understand it. So you catch your four fish, you have to kill them and you go. And um, so they were just sort of, you know, nymphing skills and imitative skills were being uh, um, not being, you know, learned or passed on so that they sort of banned them. So, but there's a rich um, competition going on in Europe, particularly in England's competitions, fly fishing competitions every, every weekend, a lot of times in different waters. And um, so this, I believe it was a Scottish team, you know, sort of, well, if you can't have foam in the front, what if you put it in the back? So they took a blob and put a split foam tail in the back end, right? And when you fish this fly called a fab, and I'll explain what this stands for in a second, when you strip it, a booby kind of wobbles and shakes a little bit and rises and falls, whereas a fab, you strip it and it goes forward, you pause and the ass end kicks up. Right. So it's got a different action. In fact, I like fishing. Them. But what they did at the end of the day is when they've had success with this fly, everybody's curious, like any time you're fishing, what fly we're using, what fly they all want to get to see it. They would actually pinch the tail off. Oh, you're just using blobs. Right. Because the foam changed. So that's how that fly key name is a fab. It stands for a foam arsed blob. 
right? Oh, and yes. now the fourth, the fourth fly in this whole puzzle uh, tractor now is called a watsit or a jelly mop, and it's got a mop tail. Yes, the mop has made it to still waters, so it's basically a blob that chenille that fritz on the front with a little mop finger tail, and it's called a watsit because there's a brand of corn chips in England called watsit crisps that look just like a little mop finger. So that's where it gets its name from. So and they all work. They all. I took. Uh, I had a watsit with me down in Argentina, chartreuse one and those big rainbows down there ate them <laughs> just as yeah so yeah we have a the whole attractor thing has really taken off in still waters in north america they have it has but the thing is i remember seeing those flies 20 years ago oh, yeah. you would have remembered them 20 mm-hmm. years ago let's yeah. be honest oh, what yeah. did you think about them 20 years ago um and it was funny because it was i started really following the Stillwater scene in the uk uh in the 1996, the World Championships were in Kamloops. And, of course, being from B.C., they're fishing our lakes, we're going to do well, right? Well, competition fishing, as you probably know, is way different than recreational fishing. Different rules. For example, you fish lakes, there's no anchoring. It's all fishing from a drifting boat, lock style, so nobody can, you know, anchor up on one spot and own the the territory. Um, and there's lots of other pros to fishing lock style. I enjoy doing it all the time. And, and, and they started, they came over with their methods and re, you know, they won, you know, Canada fished way down, you know, and that sort of, okay, again, being a bit of a sponge for knowledge, it's like, I'm going to follow that scene, right? And I started subscribing to magazines and going down to chapters. Now it's Indigo's, but, and getting Trout Fisherman magazine and just studying up and all these different techniques. Cause it was so interesting we're all trying to catch the same type of fish. Fish don't know international boundaries or anything like that. They just, they're fish. And so how do they come at the same problems we do from different angles? It's a real eye-opening experience. I'm sure you've experienced down in Australia and other countries who had the fortune to fish. He's like, oh, I never would have thought of doing it that way. But what a cool way to do something, right? And then you come back and look like the genius because you're doing it. But for many years, uh, I, I think we were so entrenched in our imitative styles. But now anybody... Uh, the fishes lakes in, in British Columbia, Western Canada, and in the Pacific Northwest. And now it's, I'm not trying to isolate other states and provinces. I'm sure it's catching on everywhere. I can't account for everyone, but understanding the value, the time and the place, um, for attractor flies and techniques. It just occurred to me, I am assuming that everybody listening right now has listened to my episode with Brian Chan, where we really dive into the biology of chronomids mm-hmm. and the chaobras. Chaobras, glass, the glassworks, yes. There are people listening who have not heard that episode. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to people listening what a triploid is? And let's talk a little bit about, you know, the black waters, panasks, and all that. Yeah, those are fish strains unique to BC. Um, But, and Brian will do this far better than I, but um, a normal two chromosome or diploid fish, uh, trout in lakes, have difficulty it's almost impossible for them to spawn because rainbow trout like many other trout species need moving water a certain size gravel to spawn in you know like most things in nature it's got to be just like goldilocks got to be just right and they won't right so they get egg bound and they get or they can't reproduce and it's very stressful on them it's almost like the system has to back up and that's not the way i think it was designed so there's a lot of mortality uh the males in particular become precocious they mature early and once a fish reaches sexual maturity it doesn't grow appreciably anymore after that so um you know there's a lot of mortality associated with this um and it just 
you know, everybody likes to catch fr- fresh, bright, lively, um, sort of immature fish. So what the triploiding process is, uh, is, is right after um, conception, they put those eggs in a flask and uh, it's either a combination of heat or pressure or both that um, by subjecting the eggs to this creates a third set of chromosomes. Hence the t- triploid as opposed to diploid two chromosome fish. And a triploid is renders them sterile. So when a fish has no growth or develop into the sexual organs, they just swim around and eat and get big. Have you fished that Jurassic Lake system? Three times. I do um, hosted trips down there now. Now, every time I look, I see photos and videos from that trip, it's always people on shore. Do they ever get out in their boat and do it the way we do it? No. Um, and it's simply because of the wind. Um, that lake is sitting right at the, you know, the eastern slopes of the Andes in Patagonia. So when that wind comes off the Pacific, runs over Chile, goes up and over the Andes and down, it comes. And we can have, the lake is known for its wind. I have fished in 75 mile an hour winds down there, um, which is, you can still fish because you're never asked to cast into the wind. It's usually, most of us are right-handed. It's off our left shoulder. So it's, our lines are being blown away or it's behind you, right? You, you never want to, standing is a challenge, <laughs> right? Um, but ironically, all the best fishing is within an easy cast length of shore. In fact, most times the guides want you to, if you can, to try and place your cast parallel because that wave action that that wind creates just churns up, you know, the, pr- the primary food source in that lake is scuds. And zooplankton and snails, no bait fish that I've ever seen. So those fish are getting big eating scuds, which I always joke is like the carbohydrate of the French, the the underwater world because it just packs on calories. Um, so you get some, it's, it's unbelievable. It's the World Series, World Cup, Stanley Cup of, of trout, stillwater trout fishing down there for me for rainbows. Do you ever think to yourself, if I could just get out to the middle in the depths where they're all, all the big ones are hiding, or is that just a grass is always greener on the other uh, side? I mentality? think there's a little grass is greener because um, you always think in anywhere you go, right? You know, steelhead fishing. If I could just get over on the other side, that part of the run looks way better than this. And then you get over and find out it's a foot and a half deep, right? It's like, I've done that in lakes. That looks so much better. Go into that bay. It's like, I'm going to run aground. I got to get out of here, right? It's not as nice as it looks. Um, but again, I run, most of the fish are uh, literally cruising a rod length from shore because that's where the food is. So yes, sometimes fish go out into deep water and, and maybe they, you know, that's one of the times we like to use attractor techniques because fish will feed out in deep water, but the food sources aren't, aren't, aren't as plentiful out there. You've got maybe leeches, uh, and this is probably in a North American leeches, zooplankton, and coronamids, you know, bloodworm, and then the ascending pupa. And that's it. Whereas you go in less than water, less than 20 feet deep, where all the sunlight penetrates, stimulates plant growth through photosynthesis, all that stuff. You've got damsels, dragons, mayflies, caddis, coronamids, scuds, crayfish, baitfish, all that stuff. It's just that's the Walmart, Costco of the underwater world. So that's one of my sort of philosophies when I lake fish, if you're having a tough time, just go where food is on the basic belief that somebody's coming in for a quart of milk at some point, <laughs> right? We all have to do that late night run. We're out of milk. Uh, I guess I'm going. So it's that same kind of mentality that I'm, I'm thinking about. So in, in Argentina, it's the same thing because the lake down there is, it sits in a cordera, like a crater. And uh, there's so much it's such a calcium rich water that the shoreline rocks are either worn from waves and wind or encrusted in calcium. 
So like you get on your taps, imagine that around a rock, you can actually kind of kick at them a little bit and they'll break open at times, small ones like a, an egg, uh, like a scotch egg. You've got the coating on the outside and the egg on the inside, right? And there's a rock in there. So it's just from the spray uh, on there, which, so you fish from shore. I did do one time out in the boat. They had a drift boat in one of the protected bays called Monster Bay. So I went out with one of the guides because they wanted sort of my opinion on, and I remember looking down at their anchor rope going, uh, there must have been 200 feet of rope there. I said, what's with all the anchor rope? He said, well, that's to tie us to shore in case the wind comes up so we can pull ourselves back in because that lake can go from flat calm to four-foot swells in 20 minutes. That's why you'd never go out in the boat because you'd probably kill yourself, right? And there's no they drive you everywhere, at least the lodge I stay at, Estancia Laguna Verde. They have 14-plus miles of accessible shoreline, so you're too... Uh, custom, two people per guide in these Hilux trucks. These are like uh, Toyota trucks on steroids. They're just tanks. They go anywhere. You've probably driven them in other countries. We have one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> everybody, in North, this morning. <laughs> everybody in North America wants one of those trucks, right? Because they're just, I couldn't believe where those trucks go. And um, they just drive you to points on, on, on the lake. And you could fish as, you know, five feet from the truck. Or if you want to hump a little bit, you can... You know, you can go a half a mile into these different spots, but it's a it's a cool place because you're fishing the same trout flies, scuds, leeches. Um, even though I've never seen a leech in that lake, it's again trout. No entomology; it just looks good to eat. You'll get fish on dries. The most bizarre dropper combination I've fished so far in lakes is a mouse with a scud dropper, right? Because they'll come up and chase. So you'll be fishing an indicator. Trout, big trout will come up and roll on your indicator, and the guide's like. Get the chubby on, right? And you put a big six or four chubby Chernobyl on, and they'll come up and eat them. And they'll eat them if you're stripped, which is something to see, the, you know, the this trout that looks like the size of a small child come out and eat your fly in this big, slow, lazy, you know, these, these, fly, these fish are steelhead size or better. What about the fisher, the fisheries with the ladders? Has anyone tried that in BC? Um, not that I've seen. I've done... Um, Pyramid Lake in Nevada. That's where it's famous. Where uh, um, a lot of our lakes, we don't have the bottom to do that. You stick a ladder in a lake, you're it's a step ladder at best, right or worse, right? You're up to your throat in mud. Um, but those lakes are just the the way they formed. Um, there's lots of gravel and hard bottom to put a ladder on. And I've I've fished it a couple of times. It's a unique experience. Um, Everybody, like we customize our boats in uh, Western Canada. They customize their ladders with rod holders and, and special, like it's, you know, it's, I, I, I got, re- I got recognized on one of the, the lakes, one of the, the spots we were fishing. And so I got a tour of all these ladders and stuff. And it was, it was unbelievable. But you, you do it because the, there's a, it goes out in the shoreline and then it drops off and it's just be able to get out there. Um, and the, the, but the thing is, you, <laughs> what happened to me is I, I catch a, a big, big cutthroat on there and I got to land it. So I got to get off the ladder and I kind of forgot I was on a ladder. So I just sort of stepped off, which when you're two feet up or three feet up is a bit of a holy shit moment because you're going down, right? You hit bottom, but it's that first second and a half is a little, uh oh, <laughs> I'm going swimming. Um, but it's, um, a little, it's unique to that fishery, right? And I believe Lake Lenore, they do it in Eastern Washington. And I'm sure there's other fisheries too, but you know, in our lakes, uh, they're often trees behind you, fringed with weeds. You just can't uh, private access, you know, land issues um, and just muddy bottoms. Um, it's just, 
a boat's watercraft of some sort's always better. We're still fishing the edges most of the time. It's kind of like river fishing. Everybody on the bank is trying to hit the middle, and everybody in the drift boats is trying to hit the bank. We're never quite happy with where our flies are going, right? Yeah. Yeah. So your your latest book, let's dive into yeah. that for a minute. What is the biggest aha moment people are going to take from it? People who have been following you for years. Is there anything new in the book? Uh, yeah, it's all, it's the first, my three books prior to this were mostly fly tying with entomology scattered in a little bit of presentation. Um, this book is all about how to fly fish lakes, sort of from what I've learned over the years from people like Brian and others. So it's, it's everything. It's a, the publisher was, you know, you agree to these things, you know, about a hundred pictures and 80,000 words. Well, sure. I don't <laughs> like how long is a piece of string? It sounds good. Um, and the book finished up at 110,000 words. Um, and I had to pull a chapter out um, on etiquette, but um, left that one out and had to, some of the descriptions I had under the fly patterns, unfortunately, I'll have to do that book too, which won't be for a while. I have a hard time writing an email right now with all that <laughs> writing and about 300 um, images uh, and graphics. My son, Sean, who's a graphic artist, did the graphics for me, you know, the line art and all that stuff. So that was, that was good to have, but um, it's, it's everything from equipment, um, floating line techniques. That was um, fishing long leaders and indicators. That was 7,500 words, I think. Um, attractor techniques, an introduction to lock style big entomology chapter. Rick Haefeli helped me with that. How Lakes Work. Brian helped. Uh, he proofread that chapter. That was the first chapter I wrote. I had to get a chapter into the publisher um, by a certain date, I think, to prove that I <laughs> weren't going <laughs> to invest in somebody that, you know, you know, could barely write an email. Um, that passed. And then Brian, you know, I wrote it up and Brian made a few minor changes, like more grammar than, you know, some grammar things and, or just a, you know, plural of this or that and said, reads good. So I was like, Ooh, I'm really happy. Um, so that I got, you know, when I wrote the book, I, I went and tackled the, the, what I felt was my, where I was most vulnerable was, was that, but I, I knew bugs, you know, I, I'm as bug crazy or perhaps more as Brian, cause I actually had bugs in aquariums, right? I was studying them and sending pictures to people like Rick. Hey, have you ever seen this before? Cause I never have. And please explain. Um, because I'd never seen it in the book. You'd see some in like caddisflies crawling out of the water to emerge. Um, I'd never seen or heard of that before. Right. And it's, you know, when you read a little, you read Gary LaFontaine's book, Caddisflies, uh, one of the first classics in that uh, genre, it was like, oh yeah, they do. It's one of those chapters you just kind of think points, you kind of breeze over the first time you read it. It doesn't sink in. Um, so it's, it's yeah, 110,000 words, dry fly techniques on lakes, sinking line techniques, knots and leaders, um, should have the book in front of me, but it's, it's a lot, you know, I, I basically, it's a somebody told me it's a tome <laughs> and i think they were being sarcastic in their comment there it's like the book weighs over two pounds <laughs> so shit my my shit well, <laughs> my wife and i took uh because brian and i have our own online stillwater fly fishing store that's another thing we've done together um and i spent two thousand dollars in shipping on the first uh day the post office you know it was you know the shipping's all part of the purchase but uh the poor people at canada post and our local post office which i've come to know quite well because i'm in there every day um their eyes bugged out of their head because we just kept coming in with more and more and more and just shipping them all over the place so it's been a it's been a cool experience why did you take out etiquette um it was a clean cut that was one of the reasons I had to drop, you know, they said, you know, this is, 
because I, I, I think it's important for people to understand that these publishers are taking a, a financial risk with you. They're the ones, you know, this is not self-published because it would, as you probably know, it costs a lot to self-publish a book. And I, for me, I didn't think the economic return uh, would be there. If I was going to invest that kind of money, I'd Bitcoin or something better. Yeah. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but uh, not that I understand Bitcoin, but um, you know, so there's, you know, and it just impacts the printing and, and just the overall cost of the book. And especially as we talked earlier, it's a niche of a niche, right? Yeah. So that's why it, it was just a clean cut because, you know, it was important. I think the gist of that chapter was, you know, understanding that when you see, you know, infractions, like one of my pet peeves on a lake is people that assemble their boats and block the launch. And while they're doing it, right, that's stuff you do up in the parking lot, those kind of things, um, because it's, you know, it happened today, right? It's just like, you're blocking the launch, I'm ready to go, right? And, um, but it's not, it doesn't turn you into a police officer, right? It's it's actually a point of education, right? Because some people just don't know, right? You just, are you going to be here a while? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize blocking the launch. Yeah, you, you know, that's why the parking lot's up there. It's probably better. You might sometimes somebody, like you do that on some um, rivers that have a lot of guides on them and you're the, the recreational angler and there's nine guide boats lined up. You're going to find out really soon about blocking the launches all about, right? Whether that's a river or lake, you're going to hear about it. So can people buy your book now? Where can they yes. buy it? Yeah, it was, uh, release date was May 1st. Um, you can buy it through all the usual sites, but I have it on uh, mine and Brian's Stillwater Fly Fishing Store, the Stillwater Fly Fishing store.com um that was a store brian and i set up and i may have said it earlier but you know people were questioning you know where do we get this and where do we get that and we would tell them where to go and then they go try and get it and it wasn't there anymore and people were accusing brian you know like i can't find it and it's our fault right so we finally said why the hell don't we do this so we sell our flies there that are tied on our behalf by montana fly strike indicators uh, our DVDs, uh, Brian's books, my earlier books, um, if they're still in print. I think my first one's finally out of print. Um, and then now this new book. So it's available there. And all of the books that come, we're not Amazon, so we can't do Prime or free shipping. I'd like to, but um, maybe someday. But they're all autographed, right? So we it's a little value added um, we can offer. But you can also get them um, from Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all of those other books. You just Google it online. But if you bought from our store, Brian, and I would sure appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll include all the direct links yeah, too, because sure. I think that's really, really important. Well, Phil, I just think you are an absolute treasure and I love speaking to, to you. Thank and you. I hope that we can, we can do it again. Yeah. Let's make this a habit. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're saying you started a YouTube channel and it would be really mm -hmm. cool to do some collaborations there. I'd yeah, love to let's, fish with let's, you. yeah, let's do that. Yeah, the YouTube channel just passed over. I think you're more than me. I checked uh, <laughs> 10,300. So, um, but uh, that was a milestone because it started out as fly tying and now has evolved more into, you know, a few how to videos and vlogs and just a day on the water uh, kind of edutainment i call it a little bit of education a <laughs> little bit of me being a, an ass uh you know <laughs> you know real stuff yes phil breaks fish off yes fish bill hooks himself with an errant cast <laughs> yeah. yeah no i love it i think it's yeah. great um before we wrap it up is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me i can't think of anything i think we've talked about lots of things you know i want to find yeah, out like about i've seen you a lot lately <laughs> yeah it's a, oh, okay sorry um but uh no it's no, good no, to see it's you. no but it's been great to see you and to to catch up because we both you know sort of grew up in the same area 
uh, and have similar experiences and talk. Probably some of your listeners are might be going, what the, where are they? Where are they talking about? Right? Because some of the the local nuances and references we're talking about. But uh, no, it's been it's been great to catch up. I'm so proud of what you've done, and, and you know, yay Canada. Um, you know, we all. You know, I think Brian said it as well. Just proud of what you've done and the, you know, the 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 roads you forged and the barriers you've had to crash through that people like myself get to benefit from. So, uh, thank you uh, as well. Thank you. No, thank you. Cool. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time. I'll include all your links and um, let's be sure to stay in touch. Definitely. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.